Morning. Good to see you guys. I think I shared with you last month that I learned that I was a Rio Classic actually sitting here in the service when they defined Rio Classic. And, uh, and I thought I had gotten used to that and then I just heard it again. So maybe not. Um, but I will say this, I went last month and it was a blast, man. I mean, you know, some of these people I've known for 25 years and it is a great group of people. I think most of them are actually coming to the next service because the luncheon is after that. Uh, but I would love for you guys to join us, those of you who qualify and those of you who are not 55 and above, you can't come. Sorry, that's the way it is. There's other stuff for you, so you can just go do that and wish you were as old as we are. All right, as Mason just talked about, we are continuing our study of the life of Jesus as Mark uniquely gives it to us in his gospel. And we come to the last part of chapter 4, that part that he just read, that story that I hope that you remember the fact pattern of, because it's going to matter. And what is Mark arguing? Well, he's making the same argument that he makes all the way through the first half of his gospel. Like he lays this whole gospel out, 16 chapters. He says, look, we're going to spend the first eight talking about the fact that Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just a great prophet. He's not just a great miracle worker. Jesus is God. And if you don't get that, you don't get Jesus. If all Mark was trying to do, at least in his day, in his part of the world, was to establish that Jesus was a great teacher, prophet, or miracle worker, he wouldn't need to write at all. Everybody knew that. Like, nobody disputed that. Even his enemies did not dispute that. Think about that. Like, if you were a reporter for the Jerusalem Gazette, and you were living in the first century, you know, where all of these people were still alive, tens of thousands of people who heard him teach, who heard these prophetic statements that he made that then came true, who actually were physically healed by him. All right, you're living in that time period, and you write this article about Jesus, and you're like, eh, you know, mediocre as a teacher. There's a crowd outside your office now. I don't really believe that he did any miracles. We say that today. If you said that back then, people would show up. They'd be like, what are you talking about? He didn't. All I know is I was lame, now I walk. What do you do with that? My cousin, he was blind, yeah, now he sees. This dude, three villages over from me, was dead. Let me introduce you to him. No one disputed these things. Not even people who didn't believe in Jesus. Listen to what Flavius Josephus says. Who is that? He was a first century historian, famous. He wrote a very famous book called Antiquities of the Jews. He talks about Jesus in his book. Listen to what he says. Not a Christian, though man does he write like one. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, why? For he was a doer of wonderful works. Not, you know, some people think that maybe, no, these people, there's still people alive who were healed by Jesus, or their children were still alive, or their grandchildren are still alive. You get the idea? Like he's a contemporary in some sense. He's writing later, but same century. He was a doer of wonderful works. A teacher of such men has received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, he says, which is astonishing to me. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the death on the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, wait for it, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Eighty ninety three. That's when he writes that. He appeared to them again on the third day. That's what these folks report. That's what these folks see. That's what the people that wrote the New Testament went to their grave 
defending, died and gave their life because that's the thing they would not recant. Mark doesn't need to write his gospel to convince anyone, at least in his day, that Jesus was a great teacher or prophet or miracle worker. Everybody understood that. He's like, no, 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 I've got a much bigger project here. What you need to understand is that Jesus is God. And here's why that matters. Because Jesus, a single man, fully man, and yet fully God, offers an infinitely valuable life. That's the key. An infinitely valuable life that he might wash away with the power of an infinitely valuable blood all of our failures, all of our regrets, all of our selfishness, all of our mistakes, all of our sins, all of our stuff. We need him to be God, to be Savior. That's why there's only one person in history who qualifies. But to understand the argument that Mark is going to fashion today is a little bit different, and it's powerful. You have to understand the story of Jonah, because one of the things that you find, and you see this when you understand the pattern of the life of Jesus, and then you look at the pattern of the lives of all of these people as you work your way all the way through the Old Testament, is you realize that God is collecting up in the person of Jesus Christ the stories of every one of these characters, He's Adam, he's Abraham, he's Jacob, he's Isaac, he's Moses. He's all of these characters are collected up in the life of one man. By the way, how could this happen unless he's God and unless this book is supernatural? And he fulfills the ministry in some sense of all of these guys. But at some moment in each one of the stories, the stories diverge. And all of a sudden, it's like Jesus kicks off the sandals of Jonah, as we'll see, and he puts on the sandals of God in the story. And then he does what only God can do. So he's not just Jonah. He's Jonah's God. As Mark sits down to pen this story, he's like, oh my goodness, I have heard this story before. Where where have I heard this? He's flipping back through the Old Testament. This is Jonah. It's Jonah's story. Right up until the point where Jesus kicks off Jonah's sandals. And then he steps into the shoes of God. Mark's like, man, I I want you to know something about Jesus. Teacher, prophet, miracle worker, he's great at all that. Here's why. Jesus is God. But to get his argument, okay, we got to look at Jonah. So as we go back into the Old Testament, we look at the story of Jonah that I'm mostly going to summarize. I want to read some of it. It starts in Jonah 1 verse 1. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Great is one of the two big words in the story. And call out against it. Why? Now notice the imagery. He says, for their evil has what? It has come up before me. What is he saying? He's saying, Jonah, Nineveh is so wicked. It is so awful. It is so brutal. It is so cruel. And listen, when you understand the Assyrian empire, and this is the capital city of Assyria, you realize, oh yeah, these people were terrible. They were vicious. They were powerful, and they would come up to the edge of your land, and they'd send in an emissary, and they would say, all right, so here's the deal. Uh, You have two choices. Option A, you can just surrender right now. We're going to take whatever we want. We're going to take whoever we want, wives, kids, all your possessions. We're going to subjugate yourselves to us. You're going to be our slaves going forward. That's the way that it's going to be. Or option two, and if you don't believe we'll do this, just ask your neighbor. We've left a little memento for you to go take a peek at. If you want to go run out there and look at it, you can do this. We will come in. We will destroy you. We'll kill everybody we want to kill. We'll take all the women and children we want to take. We'll take all of your stuff. We'll make the rest of you slaves. We'll repopulate your land with some of our people and so forth so that it's productive and then we'll cut the heads off of all of the people that we kill and we'll pile them up in pyramids so that everybody who resists us going forward realizes this is what's coming. 
That's what we just did to your neighbors. Do you want to go look at the pyramid of heads? That's the Ninevites. That's the Assyrians. God's like, look, Jonah, so let me talk to you about the Assyrians, that these people in Nineveh. So here's the deal. Their wickedness is so great that it's like a mountain. And the mountain like has a peak that is so high that it has pierced the heavens. It has come up before me and it cannot be ignored. But, and here's the heart of God. Before I just visit it in judgment, I want to make these people an offer of peace. I want to extend to these people mercy. I want you, Jonah, and I want you to go and I want you to preach the gospel to Nineveh. That's it. I want you to go and to let them know that, yes, justice is going to be satisfied and it will be satisfied in a Jesus who in his day is still far yet in the future and yet they looked forward to and trusted in. There will be a sacrifice so great because he's God and man, he's infinitely valuable, that I can wipe away a mountain of sin and brutality and so high it pierces the heavens. So Jonah, there's your mission. Have at it. But he doesn't have at it. It says in verse 3 that instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And in doing so, he went what? Because it's the second key word in the story. He went down. He went down to Joppa. That's modern-day Tel Aviv. You can go there today and see the ancient seaport. It's still there. And then he found a ship going down to Tarshish, which is not just kind of a perilous word to say quickly, but it was also the farthest place that you could buy a ticket to travel to by sea. So in other words, he's supposed to go east to Nineveh. He goes west instead. He goes down to the port city of Joppa. He's like, how far can you take me by boat away from there? They're like, well... Farthest port is Tarshish. He's like, great, I don't know anybody there. I'm going there anyway. He buys a ticket, so he goes down there to Joppa, and he pays the fare. He goes down on board the ship to go with them, the rest of the people on this boat, to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then if you know the story, of course, having gone down to Joppa and then down onto the ship, he goes down under the deck of the ship, and he goes up into the stern of the boat, and he falls fast asleep, and they leave the port. What does God do? He sends a great, you hear the word, wind. And that causes a great storm. And that causes a great panic. Like all these guys on the ship, all these professional sailors start freaking out, which is, by the way, when you get nervous. I mean, that's the time. It's how you know. Remember, I was flying back from Fiji one time in an airplane, and we were just boom, boom. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I, I was sitting across, like, from one of the flight attendants, and I said, are you nervous? You know, like, I pulled my little blinder, like, are you nervous? He's like, no, no, I get nervous when my knees hit me in the face. I said, okay. All right. If you get nervous, wake me up. Otherwise, I'm out. You know, like, when they get nervous get nervous. They're taking the cargo of this boat for which they were commercially responsible. Like if they live through this, they've got to reimburse these people. They're throwing it over over the side of the boat. But why? Because their lives are on the line. They don't care. They're trying to lighten the ship as much as they can. And at this point, the captain goes down under the deck of the ship, probably looking to see if there's anything else they can throw away. And Jonah is asleep. And the man is incredulous. Like he wakes him up. He's like, what's the matter with you? Don't you care that we're perishing? Get up. How can you be sleeping right now? Pray to your God. We're all praying to ours. Maybe your God will save us. But what's the problem? 
The problem is that the only prayer that God is looking for right now from Jonah is a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer that puts him on a boat going the other direction. That's the prayer. And that's what repentance is, by the way. It's turning. It's like I'm going this way. God's back there. His mission's back there. What he wants me to do is back there. I'm going this way. And I stop and I let go of this and whatever expectation it is that I have coming to me from this. And instead, I lay hold of Christ and realize that's where I'm going to be satisfied anyway. And I walk away from that. And that might involve counseling and that might involve accountability and that might involve all kinds of things. And sometimes you take three steps forward and two steps back. But it is a turning and it is a going back in the other direction. I was sitting in our alpha group a couple of Thursdays ago. And this precious lady who's a part of our group, I love her. She's great. And it's awesome. Like you get to know people. And I think that she was raised Catholic. Like she hasn't said this and I'm not taking a shot at the Catholic church. But she noticed a pattern in her youth. She's like, I would watch people. They would go to confession. They would confess. And then they would just do the same thing. And then they would go to confession They would confess, and then they would just do the same thing, like week after week after week after week after she says it's not sincere. I said, you're right, it's not, and it's not repentance. It's different. Repentance is, no, 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 I'm turning, and I'm going to find here when I'm never going to find here anyway, and I'm giving this up that I might have Jesus and be on his mission. That's what God wants from this guy, and even though his life is on the line, he's not going to do it. He's unwilling. (laughs) So the boys in the boat, I mean, they've thrown everything over and tied themselves to the mast at this point. They're like, I don't know, man. We've never seen anything like this. It seems like God or the gods or somebody is upset with somebody maybe on our boat. If we can figure out who God is upset with, maybe we can figure out how to get out of this mess. And so they start casting lots, which was an ancient way. It's almost like rolling dice. It was an ancient way of trying to discern the mind of God. Is it him? Let's throw the lots. No. Is it him? No. Is it him? No. What about this guy, this Jewish prophet guy named Jonah? Is it him? Yes. And they look at Jonah and they're like, what have you done? What, what's going on? And then he tells them that he's running from the God, not just of the land, but of the sea. How dumb is that? My God is the God of the land and the sea. So I just thought I'd get on the boat with you guys and you're welcome. You know, and they're like, man, why didn't you just go to Nineveh? Which, I mean, if you don't know the story, you might be wondering the same thing. Why didn't he just go? He was told, go do what you're told. Like, why didn't he go? Well, again, because Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. They were a brutal, cruel, powerful empire, and they were spreading down from the northeast, and he knew that it was just a matter of time before they reached his country. And he didn't want to rescue them. He wanted God to destroy them before they destroyed his country. And so then favoring his country over God and the mission of God, He said, yeah, no, I'm just going to deny them the ability to repent. I mean, clearly God is sending me there for a reason. If I go make the offer, more likely than not, they're going to repent and be rescued from the disaster that God will otherwise bring upon them justly. So for the sake of my nation, I'm going to walk away from God and his mission, and I'm going to just try to take their ability to survive with me by denying them the gospel. Did anybody feel the ice get thin under my feet or is it just me? 
Like you can hear a cracking, right? Like you just want to lay down and spread the weight out so you don't drop through. We're divided over a lot of things in this country, are we not? Lots of things. And no matter which part of which side of which thing you're on, you're pretty sure that the mountain of wickedness of the other people who are out to destroy your country, and maybe are, pierces the heavens. God's like, you know what? I got a message for them. And I want to bring it through you. Will you do it? I mean, it's easy to do that with a friend. It's easy to do that with somebody you love. It's easy to do that. But it's somebody that you've been, you know, like this with maybe on social media or whatever, just now for a couple of years. And, you know, all of our passions have been like amped to DEFCOM 5. Perhaps justly. Yeah, you're the one, you're the person. You're the one. Jonah's like, yeah, no, not me. So the lot falls on Jonah. They're like, dude, what gives? And he tells them, and they're like, okay. So that's it. This dude brings out his computer. He's like, I don't know if we're going to live, but I'm changing our intake form, right? So question number one, are you running from God? Question number two, did you tell the truth on question number one? Like, we don't ever want to experience this again. They're like, this is seriously out of control here. The anger of your God needs to be appeased. How do we do this? Jonah says, there's only one way to do it. You've got to sacrifice my life so that all of you might be saved. Throw me overboard. And by my life, you will have peace with God. Sound familiar? So they do. They throw him over. And the man who went down to Joppa, down onto the ship, down under the ship, now goes down into the water By the way, the wind and waves stop immediately, and all of the guys on the boat are in awe. They're in fear in a good way of the Lord, and they worship Jonah's God. And look, here's the deal. If you don't know the rest of the story, you probably think, okay, well, that's it then. That's that's the end of the story. We're done with the story. But if you went to Sunday school, then you know about the great fish. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And look, when you were six years old, that was the seriously like the coolest part of the story. I remember seeing that in flannel graph, like Jonah went into the the belly of the, his feet were like sticking out. I'm like, whoa, you know, this is amazing, you know, but somewhere between six and 56, it starts getting a little different to you, does it not? Now you look at it and you're like, all right, come on now. Really? A big fish? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Let's play it out. Jesus did not think it's crazy, so I think we've got to start with that. If Jesus is the risen Son of God, then I think we need to go, all right, was he crazy? Because he believed this, apparently. Listen to what he says. Matthew 12, verse 40 says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, wait a minute, just as Jonah was, so also will the Son of Man, me, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried in a tomb for three days, three nights, and then, like Jonah was spit forth from the fish, we're getting to that, I'm going to come forth from the grave. He's not talking mythologically about his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. That's literal conversation. 
And it's saying the same thing about Jonah. It's not like, you know, the myth of Jonah and that weird story about the fit. Don't, yeah, just don't, you know, just go with me on this. Kind of like and that weird story, you know, then, but, but actually literally for me, no, he's like, just like that, this. What do you do with that? I mean, wow. All right, I'm going to give you a sentence. The first word matters. If, if you believe in the Bible, then, you believe in a world that is supernatural. Automatically, like all of a sudden, we're living in a world that was supernaturally created and that is supernaturally sustained by God who is entirely supernatural. And so then why is it when we go into the Bible or when we look at the things that happen that seem to be supernatural in our world or maybe even in our lives, so I think a lot less of it happens because we don't have faith for it, to be honest, we automatically look for ways to find a way to naturalistically explain this. Okay, so here's what really happened. All right, Jonah, yeah, 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 they threw him over, you know, and then the, the, the weather pattern changed and it slowly died down. Something that seemed dramatic to them. And so they were saved and so they were happy. And then he sunk down to the bottom of the sea and I don't know, he found like a abandoned German U-boat or something from World War II. And then he, he got into the U-boat, you know, and then he figured out how to use it because he was a bright guy. And then he made his way to Nineveh because he thought, that's a cool idea. And then he beached it on the beach and then everybody saw him and then he opened the hatch. And these people are unsophisticated. They have no understanding of how submarines or technology or any of that stuff works. And so they thought, man, this is a big fish. It's like a big sea creature or whatever. And then he came forth and that's a more reasonable explanation. I just kind of want to say, look, if God created us and we can create submarines and all this underwater technology to keep people alive, does it strain credulity to think that the God who spoke creation into being could find a way to keep a dude under underwater alive for three days and transport him from point A to point B? I start going, yeah, all right, carry on. What else? The great fish swallows Jonah. He's buried, to use Jesus' language, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, during which he rethinks life. I mean, that would be unpleasant. You know, all his clothes are bleached now. It's like, you know, it's just, okay, okay, I'll go, I'll go. God's like, yeah, I know, I'm already taking you, right? So then, so then he takes him and he belches him up onto the beach publicly, I think, is a real key to this story. And this is where the fish makes sense. Why did he use a fish? He could have gotten him there any possible different ways. Like, God's imagination is far greater than ours. He belches him up onto the beach straight out of a fish so that the Assyrian people would receive him as a messenger from God. According to the mythological sayings of the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian people. They had these people, they were demigods, they would come as, as people who brought wisdom from the gods, as messengers of God. They were called an apkalu. Look at what an apkalu looks like. Look at the side screens. You can see the man's face, you can see his arms, you can see his feet, but his body is entirely encapsulated in a fish. That's actual engravings from that time period and those people. This is what they believed. God is so merciful that he is going to send his prophet, who's utterly unknown to these people, to preach the gospel to them. You'll hear his sermon. It's eight words, which I know you wish mine was eight words. But anyway, there's no way this would work unless... God condescends to send his messenger to them in a form that they would understand. 
as a messenger from God himself. So he comes in a fish, and he's spit up onto the beach, and he walks into the center of of Nineveh, this massive ancient city, and here's his eight-word sermon that he delivers exactly one time, and then he leaves. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Probably with less enthusiasm. He drops the mic, he leaves. That's it. And from the king all the way down to the lowest servants in the city, it's huge. It's like 120,000 people in this city. That's a big ancient city. Everyone repents across the board. And what you would expect is that Jonah would be kind of excited about that because if you're a missionary or if you know anything about missionaries, I mean, can you imagine the letter that he could put together for support? I mean, you want bang for your buck? Eight eight words, 120,000, one day. Yeah, it's amazing. He's not happy at all. Here's how the story ends. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He's not just a little displeased. He's exceedingly displeased. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? My country. Oh, is that, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a. Now, wait a minute. Don't read the screens. I just want to stop for a second. If I said to you, describe God, I knew that you are a, how would you finish it? An exacting taskmaster, a harsh and hard. Jonah knows who the Lord is, guys. He gets it right. The whole story is showing it. I don't, I, before I come in judgment, I come in mercy. I'm sending these people, a guy coming out of a fish for crying out loud, like, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Boy, that's just good for the soul right there. Yes, Lord. And relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live and to eventually see these people make their way down to my country and create a pyramid of heads. And yet the Lord said to Jonah, love this question, do you do well to be angry? I think a lot of us could ask ourselves that because a lot of us are pretty angry about a lot of things. He says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't even respond. He's so angry. He's talking to God. He's like, you know what? Well, no, talk to the hand. I'm out. He just ignores him. Says that Jonah went out of the city and he sat down to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And then he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city, praying to God, no doubt, that God would still bring disaster upon the city. Destroy it, please. And now the Lord, he's trying to show Jonah why he does not do well to be angry, appointed a plant. Now, why does that matter? Because an Apkalu, by the way, also had the task of fertilizing the tree of life cultivating it, keeping it alive. 
God's interacting with all of these ideas that we look at, and oh, sure, a plant, and it grew up, and then he destroyed it. Okay, wait a minute. Shouldn't we be looking for supernatural in the Bible and in life? Anyway, now the Lord God appointed a plant and he made it to come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head. It's really hot there and to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah, who was exceedingly angry earlier, okay, he was displeased. Now he's exceedingly glad because of the plant for crying out loud, he's glad. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered and it gave to Jonah an object lesson that's coming in a minute. And when the sun rose and God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked again that he might die and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, okay, listen up. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. It's here, it's gone. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who, spiritually speaking, do not know their right hand from their left and who will live forever somewhere and also much cattle? He's saying, look, Jonah, so here's the deal. The things that are coming between you and me and my mission, be that your country, be that your comfort, be that your money, be that all of the things that we hang on to and we're like, "Ah, I can't really be a part of what God is doing because honestly, I've got both fists into this. It's just plants. Stuff you didn't even create, it's given to you. I gave it to you. I raise it up, I take it down. But I, God, am concerned with that which lasts forever, and that is the eternal souls of people, and so then ought you to be, is the point. And what's funny about the story, I mean, it's not really humorous funny, but it's interesting at least, is that literally that's the last part of the story. Like, we don't know what Jonah does. What's his response? No idea. The story is written to elicit the response of us. The question isn't what did he do, the question is what will we do? You're like, all right, so we'll get to that, but... I thought we were studying the book of Mark and Jesus' life in Mark and Mason got up and he read seven verses and it was a story and I was like, I'm thinking, I thought Mark was making the argument that Jesus is God. So let's play that out. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord of glory, the son of the living God, as Mark makes clear in sentence number one of his gospel, who unlike Jonah in perfect obedience to his father, left his kingdom and all of the pleasures thereof to enter into the world. Why? Because my pile of wickedness is so high, it was piercing the heavens. And God is a God who comes first in mercy. He came to offer mercy. He came himself as the gospel. And yes, at one point, as we read, he boarded a boat with his disciples, by the way, all of which are professional sailors. They're fishermen by trade. And they head out onto the sea, right? And what does Jesus do? He goes to sleep in the stern of the boat. 
And all of a sudden, a great wind, same language, causes a great storm, same language. It comes through the gash in the earth there by the Sea of Galilee that is surrounded by mountains, and it causes a wind and a storm and the waves, and they're getting overwhelmed. And these guys are freaking out, which is when you get nervous, and they will wake Jonah up, or Jesus, sorry, up, and they're like, get up! Don't you care that we're perishing? Do something, in other words. And Jesus says, oh, good grief, you're right, we're all going to go down, save your lives, throw me overboard. No, that's where he kicks the sandals off of Jonah, and he puts on the sandals of God. The Lord of creation speaks to what he has created, and you know what? It obeys him. Fish, wind, waves, whatever. He says, hush, be still, and it's still. And what happens to the men in the boat? Same thing as with Jonah. As soon as the sea dies down and the wind goes away, they're in awe. And they ask a question that is rhetorical in nature. In other words, they know the answer. They say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They know Jonah's story. Only God can command the wind and waves. And it's important that Jesus is God because later he takes upon himself my mountain of sin and yours if you'll give it to him. And in our place on a cross, he appeases the wrath of God for us, offering an infinitely valuable life, a life that is alone valuable enough to wipe out all the failures of all of us, to erase the mountains, to take them down, to free us from the tomb that we find in burying ourselves under them. He appeases the wrath of God. He is placed into a tomb. And like Jonah, he's buried, if you will, for three days and three nights. And like Jonah is spit up on the beach, Jesus comes forth from the grave. He gathers up his disciples and he's like, guys, the whole world is my Nineveh. And you are my Jonas. Go and let everybody know that I come with a message of peace. That I come offering grace. And I think what we need to ask ourselves is what is keeping us from living on mission? What is it? Because this story is coming to us and saying, listen, no matter what it is that you're hanging on to, you think your life is going this way, it's going this way. You're like, no, 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 it will ruin my reputation at the office if I you know, become known as somebody who believes in Jesus. All right, well, maybe your reputation is doing this. And God's like, but your life, if you haven't figured it out yet, you will eventually is doing this. Like, no, i got to hang on to all of my money. I mean, I get the idea that this might actually be financially expensive to me, and maybe it will, but here's the deal. When you lay hold of Jesus and he is your treasure, you hold everything else like this, and all of a sudden now it's a joy. That's the piece we miss. But if you hang on to it and you're like, no, 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 I'm not going to be a part of this, maybe your finances go like this. I mean, you're going to let it all go when you die. But in any event, God's like, maybe they're doing this, but, but you're doing this. I see people with their career, and that becomes their God. I can give you countless examples of this, with names. I won't, but really, where all of a sudden this amazing, and it is amazing, career opportunity, which might, by the way, be the will of God for this person, a great opportunity, opens up, and they just move, and they take their family out of a place where they're growing and learning and, and, and just are on mission and on fire and everything is, and they go, and without even seeing if that's really the will of God, asking for his permission, because, I mean, to be honest, it's just what you want to do, and even checking to see if there's another place where we can continue this growth. And then I see them 10 years later. I'm like, hey, how you doing? You know, because they'll show up for vacation or whatever. 
and, and this is not happening then. That's not every case, for sure. And sometimes it is the Lord's will for you to move. Take the job. But following Jesus is following Jesus. And if that's where he leads you, go. But if it's not, it's like, all right, your career might be doing this. But the Lord's like, this. What is keeping us from following Jesus? Whatever it is, it's causing this, not this. And whatever it is, I mean, when you look at it in the final analysis and you compare it to the eternal value of Christ's mission and people, I mean, guys, it's just plants. It's just plants. Plants that we didn't even make. Plants that we didn't even grow. Plants that we can't even keep alive. I mean, in my house, I mean, you know, that's the place where plants come to die. I... I close with this. Do you know Jesus? Did you hear the heart of God for you? He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, and sending Jesus for you. Let the mountain be removed, man. We stay up here after the service. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you. We've got this thing called Alpha on Thursday night, 7 o'clock. We have a great meal. We watch a 25-minute video on a question of faith or meaning or life. And we sit around with people who do not believe in Jesus, and we talk it out. We'd love for you to do that, and that's a safe way for you to explore this Thursday night. So do you know Jesus? And then secondly, are you making him known? Are you making him known? Okay, even to your Ninevites, whoever they may be. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are so grateful, um, God, just for the miraculous nature of your word, the word that we find in the Bible, written by all of these people over all of this time period, and yet all of it finding its, its culmination, its, its point, its purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. And we praise you that he is not just a great teacher or prophet or miracle worker, but that he is God because we've got a mountain to be dealt with, all of us. Lord, we praise you that you are gracious and merciful, that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love, that you relent from disaster. And we thank you for the one whom you sent to receive the disaster, if you will, for us in our place on a cross, who is man, yes, but who is God, and who gave his life that we might be forgiven that we might know abundant life in this life and that we might know eternal life in the next. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and lay hold of us. Bring us to the reality of that if we don't have that faith yet. But if we have that faith, inspire confidence in us, inspire passion in us, inspire joy in us, inspire love in us. Let us see the futility of clinging to plants and instead repent and turn and learn to follow you. Lord, where do you want to take us and to whom? We are your servants. So make use of us, we pray.
ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.